Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of one of our 2020 Elul study classes. Rabbi Schatz asked me to talk with you about a book I wrote back in, we just figured it out, 2009, called The Seven Questions You're Asked in Heaven. And I'm very, uh, always been very excited about this book because for years I've been fascinated uh, with the rabbis in our tradition who tell stories in their great imagination that when you get to heaven, you're asked questions about how you lived your life on earth. So these are not questions to get you into heaven. We're all going into heaven. Let's, let's put that out there right now. The question is, what will you be asked about how you lived your life on earth? Now this, as many of you know, is a spiritual process called cheshbon hanefesh. So you go to Israel and you have a meal and at the end of the meal comes a bill and that's called a cheshbon, a bill or an accounting. Nefesh, of course, is the word for soul. So cheshbon hanefesh is the process of an accounting of the soul, which is one of the main purposes of the High Holidays, uh, certainly of Yom Kippur. It's a way to review and renew uh, your life here on earth. So in my book, I explore seven questions. Uh, Five of them are from Rava, a very well-known rabbi in the Talmud, one from an 18th century Hasidic rabbi you've probably heard of called Rabbi Zussia, and one from the 19th century rabbi who is the founder of modern orthodoxy, Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch. So today I thought what we would do is spend the first part of our time together uh, looking at the seven questions together, and then I want to invite you to think with me Uh, not just about the text we're going to look at, but what are the questions underneath the question? In other words, what are the rabbis trying to get at when they ask these questions? So when I was writing this book, uh, which takes about two years for me to write a book, uh, I always ask friends to weigh in on the topic that I'm thinking about. So for two years, two full years, I'm asking everybody I know When you get to heaven, what questions do you think you're going to be asked about how you lived your life on earth? And if you want to, in the chat, uh, write down a question, you know, type a question in. Rabbi Schatz will take a look at it. And maybe uh, we can uh, share a couple of these questions. If we were in person, I I would ask you to share, turn to someone and think about the questions you think you're going to be asked when you get to heaven about how you lived your life on earth. So Rabbi Schatz, has anybody put in a question? Oh, I see one. Rabbi, do you want to read them? Sure. The first one is, did you help others? Great question. The second one is, were you nice to other people? Ooh, I like that. What were you doing when no one was looking? (laughs) Excellent. I see... I see more hands typing, but no more questions yet. Uh, All right, a couple more. What acts of chesed have you done? 
Beautiful. Did you make opportunities to be kind and helpful? Excellent. Did you give Sadaka regularly? Oh, wow. So these are terrific questions. And I, I, I'll, I'll, you know, I wish we had time to consider all of them, but they're great questions. So as I'm doing this work, uh, I asked my mother, my mother Bernice, may she rest in peace, was a phenomenal woman. Uh, she was a volunteer at the synagogue. She created a braille group, a small group of women who created the first braille Hebrew English Haggadah. Uh, she was a business person. She created a chain of donut shops in Omaha, Nebraska, when we were growing up, called Dippy Donuts. And uh, she's just a remarkable human being. I miss her every day. So I asked her, I said, Mom, when you get to heaven, what do you think you'll be asked about how you lived your life on earth? And she thought about it a minute, and then she said to me, Ronnie, I think I'll be asked, was I a good mother? Was I a good wife? Was I a good daughter? Was I a good sister? And I said to her, great, Mom, those are terrific questions, but they're all about family. I think what I'm trying to get at is, how did you live your life on earth? She thought another minute about how she lived her life on earth. And then she said to me, Ronnie, I think I'll be asked, was I honest in my business? Now, I don't think my mother ever studied Talmud, but wouldn't you know that's the very first question we're asked when we get to heaven, according to Rava and the Talmud 2000 years ago. So Rabbi Schatz, could we put up the text? And let's look at the first five questions. Yeah. This is from Shabbat 31a. <laughs> so if you look on the left here, the, in the second paragraph, it says the Gemara presents an alternative exposition of this verse, Amar Rava. Rava said, When they escort a person to his or her final heavenly judgment after his or her death, Omrim Lo, the heavenly tribunal says to him or her, here comes the first question, Nasata venatata ve'emuna. Nasata venatata is the Talmudic way of saying business, commerce. Emuna, you all know, emuna is faith. Did you conduct your business faithfully? What? What? That's the first question you're asked in heaven about how you lived in life on earth, not did you give tzedakah, not did you follow the mitzvot, not were you kind to other people. The first question is, were you honest in your business? I, it's shocking, really. So the question is, what's underneath the question? So if you think about it with me for a minute, what I do in the book is I tell stories that I think illustrate what the question's really all about. My favorite story in the book about this first question comes from a friend of mine, Antoinette Matlins, who is the wife of Stuart Matlins, who was my publisher for many years. Uh, many of you have books from Jewish Lights Publishing. So Stuart was the founder of Jewish Lights Publishing. And his wife, Antoinette, is a world famous expert in gemstones and evaluating diamonds and rubies and sapphires and so on. She tells me the story when she knew I was writing this book. She says, Ron, I was once on a cruise ship giving a, uh, one of those workshops on how to look at 
find gemstones in the next port in the Caribbean. And there's a guy in the audience who's sitting like this, like, you can't tell me nothing. And she knows some people are like that, so she pays it no mind. And then um, she explains to the group that one good thing you could use when you go to evaluate a good, a good piece of jewelry is called a loop. You know what a loop is? It's that little magnifying glass that jewelers use. She says, try to use a loop to look at stones. So the workshop is over. Uh, the next morning, this man who was sitting like this shows up at her breakfast table on the cruise ship and says, Antoinette, tomorrow, today, I'm going to my jeweler in this port who I've been buying from for 30 years because my wife and I are celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary. I'm going to get five beautiful diamonds to make a brooch. And Antoinette says, fine, you know, good luck. And then this man says to her, hey, you know that loop you were telling us about? May I borrow it? Antoinette was thrilled and lends him the loop. This man now walks into the jeweler, who's very happy to see him, he's a good customer, and says to him, I need five beautiful diamonds. And the jeweler goes on the back and comes out with the black felt tray with the diamonds. And only then did this man pull out the loop to look into the stones. And what do you think happened next? The jeweler grabs the tray and runs to the back muttering something about, oh, I remember something else just came in. So what do you think this man with the loop did? He turned right around, devastated that he'd been buying from this jeweler all these years, came back to the cruise ship, hands Antoinette the loop and says, Antoinette, thank you for teaching me about the loop because it not only helped me look for the imperfections in the stone, it helped me see the imperfections in the jeweler, in the business person. So this question, were you honest in your business? The key word is honesty. Can we trust that you were honest in not just your business relationships, but in all of your relationships? If you're not honest and trustworthy and faithful in your business, can you be faithful and trustworthy in your interpersonal relationships, even with your relationship with God? So that's the reason I think that Rava made, were you honest in your business? The very first question. Let's look at the second question. Ah, uh, let's see. Okay, here it is. Kavata itim la Torah. Did you set aside fixed times for Torah study? Well, mazel tov, everybody. Uh, you get to answer that question <laughs> directly uh, by joining this uh, study session and certainly all the other wonderful study sessions. So, but what's underneath the question? And why Torah study? Well, Torah study is the ultimate guide for us to find meaning and purpose in our lives. And why fixed times? Because if you don't have regularly scheduled times to study Torah, you're so busy, even in this pandemic, we're all so busy with a million Zoom calls and with, even though we're isolating, it gets away from us. Doesn't it feel like Groundhog Day? You know, like every day is the same. But you know what? I think what Rav is saying here is you got to fix time. And that's why Rebecca, Rabbi Rebecca Schatz has done such a mitzvah for all of us to create this wonderful series of learnings in our pre-Tishrei study. 
Fabulous. All right, let's look at the next question. Asakta Bafria Uravia. Did you engage in procreation? Did you have kids? Now, let's be honest, this is tough. This is a tough question because there are plenty of people who try mightily to have children and cannot. And there are some who decide they just can't do it. They don't have children, decide not to have children. But let's look at the question underneath the question. I think it's about legacy. What legacy have you left during your lifetime here on earth? Uh, my favorite story in the book about this comes from uh, a story I often tell about my Zadie, my grandfather, Louis Paperni. May he rest in peace. I grew up with uh, two brothers and uh, a bunch of cousins. And whenever we came over to Bubby and Zadie's house in Omaha, Zadie was uh, about five foot tall, but he had enormous legs because he was a produce guy. He was a grocer. And when it came over to Bubby and Zadie's house, you would get Bubby's cookies, those were mandel bread studded with almonds from Bubby and a kiss. And then you'd round the corner through the dining room into the living room where Zadie sat in his throne. It was a big red velvet chair. And as soon as he would see me, he'd open up these enormous legs of his and I would jump into his lap and he would give me the biggest hug and he would uh, give me this wet, scratchy kiss. And he would look me in the eye and he would say in his Russian accent, Rani, you're the best boy in the United States of America. And I would, and he put me, he, he would do this thing like a wrestler. He would do a leg lock. He would put his legs around me so I couldn't get out. You know, I'm six years old. I couldn't get out. And he would say to me, Rani, you're the best boy in the United States of America. And I said, Zadie, I know, I know. Let me go. Nope, three times. Rani, you're the best boy in the United States of America. And finally, he let me go. And then about a minute later, my brother Bobby would come around the corner and he would jump into Zadie's lap and Zadie would put him in a leg lock, give him a big wet scratch a kiss, look him in the eye and say to him, Bobby, you're the best boy in the United States of America. And then my brother Dougie, Dougie, you're the best boy in the United States of America. And he did that for every one of us grandchildren, nine of them. We're the best boy or the best girl in the United States of America. And I do this for my grandchildren now. And that's the point, the very important point, that just by me sharing that story with you today, that solidifies Zadie Louis Paperni's legacy and how he influenced my life. You know, uh, our daughter, Javi, the mother of my two grandchildren, uh, was married by a rabbi, many of you know, Rabbi Ed Feinstein. And at, just before we went to the chuppah, Ed said to the Javi and her, her soon-to-be husband, Dave, you know, you have a family that loves and adores you, and they've raised you to this point. But from now on, you are not only a descendant. From now on, you have the potential to be an ancestor. It gave me chills. In fact, I dedicated my book. It says, in the dedication, it says, uh, to my descendants from your ancestor. So underneath this question, 
it's not just about did you have children. It's about did you influence the next generation? Did you have an impact on the next generation? So whether you have children and grandchildren or whether you foster children or whether you just mentor children, that's the question. And you'll be asked about it when you get to heaven. Let's look at the next question. Ah, this is a good one. Sipita Lishua. Did you wait and hope for the messianic salvation? Now, wait a minute. I know some of you are thinking, salvation? Really, Ron? Really, Talmud? Isn't salvation a Christian concept? No, it's a Jewish concept. The Christians took our best stuff. Every Saturday night, we sing Havdalah, and after many holidays, Havdalah. How does Havdalah begin? Behold, God, Yeshuati is my salvation. So salvation is certainly part of Jewish thinking. But the key question, the key word in the question is this word sipita, which means hope, tikva in Hebrew. So the underlying question in this question is, did you live your life in hope or did you live your life in fear? And there's a very thin line between the two. So the story in my book that illustrates this comes from a trip that we took, Susie and I, my wife Susie and I took to Australia a number of years ago, where it's a long trip to Australia, if any of you've done it. And um, Susie was doing fine uh, once we got to our locations, but I noticed that walking from the uh, boarding gates to the baggage claim in some of those airports is a very long walk, and Susie had to stop and take a breath. She was short of breath, and I knew that was a problem. So when we got back to L.A., uh, I took her to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, we're going to have to get uh, cardiac uh, catheterization. It's called an angiogram. So before we could even call our kids to come to Los Angeles, Susie's on a gurney being rolled into a cath lab at Kaiser Permanente and Sunset Boulevard. And I'm sitting in a waiting room by myself. I once heard that there are no atheists in a waiting room in a hospital. And I was praying and I was vacillating between these two emotions, hope and fear. On the one hand, whatever was the problem, I hoped they would find it and be able to fix it. But on the other hand, I was fearful that if they had to fix it with an open heart surgery, I couldn't imagine that Susie would have, have to endure that. About an hour later, the doctor comes to the front door, the entry door to the waiting room, and I run to meet him with these two emotions bubbling up, and I say to him, how did she do? And the doctor said, oh, your wife did fine. And now my hope factor goes sky high. And then he said, but we found something. And my fear factor kicked in within a nanosecond. I said, what did you find? And he said, we found a 95% blockage in your wife's heart. But we were able to open it and put a stent in there. And she should do just fine. You can see her in about an hour. So I thank the doctor and I'm waiting for the hour. And finally they call me into the recovery room 
And I, Susie is all excited. She can't wait to tell me about this experience. She was, Ronnie, I was awake through the whole thing. There was a big screen TV and I saw it go in and, I, and how it opened. And, and I, I said, Susie, I'm glad you're excited. But we dodged a bullet and I gave her a big kiss. And she said, yeah, we did. And after that, our friends and family would call and they would say, how's Susie doing? And I say, oh, she's, she's in it now. She's, she's on a diet and she's losing weight and she's watching her sugars. And, and she, is, she got a trainer three times a week and she's, she's, she's on it. She's, she's got the fear of God in her. Have you heard that expression, the fear of God in you? And I stopped myself. And I said, no, she doesn't have the fear of God. She has the hope of God. So this question Rava's asking us is, did you live your life in fear or did you live your life in hope? And as we all live through this pandemic, this question resonates with me up and down my body and in my heart. Uh, Susie and I have been at the Mayo Clinic for seven months as of tomorrow. She received a life-giving kidney transplant on February 14th, and I donated my kidney on her behalf a week later. And there have been many complications. She's had three hospitalizations, a whole number of other kinds of issues. But thank God she's doing well. The new kidney, which she named Sydney, is working magnificently. I feel great. My kidney went to a woman, I don't know, an anonymous woman in Florida who is married to a Southern Baptist minister, teaches school in her Sunday school or church Sunday school. And when she found out about me, she wrote in an email, Ron, I feel so blessed to have a Jewish kidney. <laughs> is that like the best thing ever? <laughs> so there have been plenty of times this last seven months where I've had this seesaw between hope and fear. And thank God hope is one out. Uh, we hope to be home to California soon. Okay, the next one, next question in our text is a double header. Look at this. These are two questions that Rava asked, but in my book, I put it together. So the first one is, Pilpalta b'chokhmah, did you delve into wisdom? And the second part of this one question is, Chavanta davar mitoch davar. When you learn Torah, did you learn it deeply and infer one thing from another? So let's look at the key words. The key words are chokhmah, which you know means wisdom. The question is, where do you get wisdom? You get wisdom from your hard-won experience in life. That's where you get your wisdom. Now look at the question, the next question is Havanta, part of the question. Havanta comes from the word Bina, which means understanding, how you use your intellect. So if you put these two together, what you come up with is, have you used in your life your hard-won experience to give you wisdom about life and combine it with your Bina, with your intellectual ability, to figure out davar mitoch davar, one thing from another. What Rav is saying here is, have you used those skills to figure out your priorities in life? So a quick story about my father, Alan, since I talked about my mom. May he rest in peace. 
my dad was a dental technician in World War II, and he dreamt of inventing a toothbrush that brushed both sides of your teeth at the same time. My mother and I and my brothers thought he was mashuga and crazy like from here to, to everywhere. But he was convinced he could do it. And he was a cardiac patient. So one day in the, doing his cardiac walks in the mall, he sees a guy custodian with a floor polisher, a round brush. He says, if I take two round brushes and I put them opposite each other and they go opposite, then the one brush gets your teeth in the front and the other gets your teeth in the back. <laughs> and I don't know how he did it, but he created a prototype of this thing. He went to an inventor's fair in Nebraska City, Nebraska. A guy comes by and says, I think you have something there and sold the idea. My dad had patented it to the Epilady people. You might remember the Epilady, some of you. It was this device that tore hair out of women's legs, a debilitator or defibrillator, or I don't know what you call it, something like that. They bought my dad's invention and they were ready to put it on the market. In fact, I took my parents to Bloomingdale's on 59th and Lexington in New York where they were testing it. It was the most fabulous day of my father's life to see his invention produced and tested at Bloomingdale's. And then a week later, just before they were going national with this invention of my father's, the uh, four girls in the family, a South African Jewish family who had invented the epilady, had squandered money. Uh, one of them spent $2 million on a Broadway play that opened on Thursday and closed on Friday. Turns out the epilady, they sold millions of them, but millions were returned because it was a torture instrument. And just as my dad's invention was coming to the national market, the company went bankrupt. But it's a happy ending. They, he sold it to uh, a company that made it as a kid's toothbrush uh, called Oral Genie. And the most important part of this story is my dad got his priorities straight. He taught us boys something really important, that when you have a dream, you can figure out how to reach it. I used to say to him, Dad, do you know how many people never had an invention come to market? And you did. And you taught us, boys, something really important. That when you use your wisdom and your intellect and your creativity to create something and you figure out what's really important, his family was number one, but his toothbrush was number two. So now we're going to leave this text, Rebecca, Rabbi Rebecca. We can turn that uh, off. Thank you. And now let's look at the last two questions. So the sixth question is the story told about Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch. He's living in Germany, in 19th century Germany. And he is said to be on his deathbed. And come his students, and they say to him, Rabbi, is there anything we can do for you? And Rabbi Hirsch is said to have said to his students, yes, take me to Switzerland. And the students can't believe it. It's take you to Switzerland, Rabbi, you're so ill. Why would you want to go to Switzerland? And the Rabbi Hirsch says to his students, because soon I will meet the Almighty. And what am I going to say to the Almighty when I'm asked this question in heaven by the Almighty? Did you see my Alps? <laughs> Did you see my Alps? So what's underneath that question is... Did you take advantage of everything 
God put on this beautiful earth, while you were alive, everything that's permitted to you to enjoy in God's creation. This is not a question about what you did do. This is a question about what you didn't do, what you didn't go experience in your life. And what's really great about Judaism, one of the things I love about Judaism is we're permitted to do a lot of things, a lot of things during our life on earth, except one day of the year. And what day of the year would that be? It would be Yom Kippur. Now, I don't know what you do about getting into a spiritual place uh, for Yom Kippur, but I do all sorts of traditional practices. I fast all day. Uh, This year, I'll be tuning in, like all of us, to services for I don't know how many hours a day on Yom Kippur. Uh, When I was going to shul, I wore sneakers, uh, not leather, because leather is a sign of luxury. I don't bathe, shave, or wear cologne. I don't have intimate relationships with Susie on Yom Kippur, and she doesn't mind because I don't bathe, shave, or wear cologne. A neighbor of mine wears a white robe to shul, and maybe this year still will wear that white robe. Now, what's that white robe? It's a burial shroud, because Yom Kippur is a kind of rehearsal of our mortality. And it forces us to do this work of cheshbonah nefesh, an accounting of the soul. How did we do last year? How can we improve our lives in the coming year? And then what do we do at the end of Yom Kippur? Well, this year, I don't know what we're gonna do, but uh, in the past, we would join together with family and friends in a breakfast. And we're all famished and we're all hungry and we would eat up to our heart's content, right? So the best breakfast in the United States of America happens to be in Omaha, Nebraska at my cousins, Don and Nancy Greenberg. Don and Nancy Greenberg have hosted 120 people at their breakfast for the last 35 years. It's the most coveted invitation in Omaha. Now, what is it about it? It's not just Don and Nancy's beautiful home. It's not the homemade strudel. It's not the blintzes. It's the fact that for 35 years, Don and Nancy have imported for landlocked Jews in Omaha, Nebraska, all kinds of beautiful smoked fish from Barney Greengrass, the Sturgeon King of New York City. 35 years. You cannot believe it. It's piles of locks and huge whitefish whole whitefish and pickled herring and pickled lox. And I'm telling you, these Jews in Omaha go nuts. They want to be at Don and Nancy Greenberg's. So one year I'm in New York for a meeting, my friends from B'nai Jeshurun, and I say to them, let's go to Barney Greengrass because I love pickled lox and cream sauce. So we have the meeting and at the end of the meeting, I go to pay the cheshbon, the bill. And sitting at the counter at the entrance of Barney Greengrass, still there, this counter, next to a big brass cash register, was the owner of Barney Greengrass, Mo Greengrass, since passed away. And he's looking down at this table in front of him, the counter in front of him, looking at all these papers, and I don't know what they were before, orders and stuff. He's paying no attention to me. But those of you who know me know I like to engage people. So I say to him, hey, Mr. Greengrass, You don't know me, but I think you know my cousins, 
Don and Nancy Greenberg. And as soon as I say their names, this guy, whose face is down in his, uh, his papers, slowly, slowly, slowly raises his face and he looks me in the eye and he says two words, good account, good account. 9104 Davenport, Omaha, Nebraska, 68114. He knew their address by heart. Good account. The goal of Yom Kippur and the high holidays and the goal of my little book, the seven questions you're asked in heaven. And what's the seventh question you're asked in heaven? It's the one you probably know the best. It's from the 18th century Hasidic master, Rabbi Zussia, who is also said to be on his deathbed. Students come around him and say, Rabbi, is there anything you're worried about now that you're about to meet God? And Zussia is said to have said, I'm not worried will I be asked, why were you not like Moses? Why were you not like King David? But I am worried that I'll be asked by God when I get to heaven, were you Zussia? Were you Zussia? Now, some of you might remember a jingle, a commercial jingle from the 20th century. It went like this, be all that you can be. Anybody remember the end of it? Find your future in the army. You could not watch a sports show in the late 20th century without hearing that commercial. Be all that you can be. I actually met the woman in Pittsburgh who invented that jingle for the army. Well, be all that you can be. That's what Zussius' question is all about. Have you done everything in your life to take the God-given talents and the passions and the spiritual gifts that you've been blessed with to continue God's creation here on earth, to fix what is broken on this earth, to fight for social justice, to do your part in building a spiritual community like Beth Am, a fabulous spiritual kilah, kilah kadosha, a sacred community of belonging and blessing and relationship. I know you do, but just remember, that's the seventh question you'll be asked when you get to heaven. And when I finished the book, I realized I'd written a kind of ethical will, a statement of what I think are some of the most important values to guide us as we live our lives on earth. And my mom saw this book a few days before she died and uh, she was in the hospital already. And uh, I showed it to her and she, she was too ill to read it, but she was very proud. And she said, Ronnie, this is lovely. What's your next book? Uh, three days after she died, uh, my brothers and I are looking through a little notebook that my mom kept with all her important information. It's like bank accounts and insurance numbers and important phone call numbers. And tucked in the inside of this blue book, notebook, was a, a little white envelope that had one word in my mother's beautiful cursive handwriting, important. So we opened up this envelope and in it was the most beautiful letter I've ever read in my life. And with your permission, I'll end this part of our conversation and we'll take some questions by sharing with you the letter my mother wrote to her three boys from beyond the grave. To my dear sons, first of all, I love you and I'm proud of all three of you. As I write this, my heart fills with pride. I'm especially proud of your roles as devoted husbands 
and particularly your roles as wonderful fathers. This is the greatest gift a child can give a parent. Someday when you read this, you will also be reminded that as a parent, another great gift you have given me is the comfort of knowing that you care for each other and that you will be there for each other if you need to be. My simple request is that you talk to each other often after your mother is no longer here to keep you posted. Please keep in touch with Doug. He has a very special challenge in his life and needs the love and support of those who love and understand him. You have given my life so much pleasure and the most I can hope for you is that your children do the same for you. I love you, Ron, Bob, and Doug. And I thank you for giving my life so much meaning. And it was signed, your mother. Is that gorgeous or what? She says everything that needs to be said in just a few beautiful words. I encourage you to write a letter like this. Don't wait to do it. We're in this pandemic, we're isolating at home, you have the time. It's the greatest gift you'll ever give your descendants. So Rabbi Schatz, why don't we open it up for some questions? We have a, another 15 minutes and, and then we'll conclude. 10 minutes, I need the last three or four minutes. Does anybody have any questions? It's a hard, a hard moment to follow. <laughs> uh, yeah, Audrey. I guess one thing that has always confused me a little bit is the Jewish idea of heaven. I mean, I, I've never really thought that we were taught that that was a thing, okay? That living now was the most important thing and not living for later like some of our other friends, maybe. Yes, that's exactly the point. Uh, Judaism does have a view of Shemayim of heaven, uh, and it does have the idea of a life after death. We can't deny that. It's in the literature. But Judaism emphasizes life before death. And that's the whole point of my book. It's the whole point of these questions from the rabbis. It's not about getting into heaven. It, to me, heaven is like a metaphor. Uh, it's not literal in my mind. For some people it is, and that's fine. And uh, that's part of that hope kind of thing. But what Judaism emphasizes is how are we living our lives now? How do we do it now? How do we take advantage? How do we care for? How do we fix? How do we repair? How do we do the best we can do with everything God has given us in this world? Uh, so it's so, deed-based. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Sure. Diane. Uh, thank you. Um, in Judaism, uh, there's a long history, maybe not of atheism, but of agnosticism. Certainly, um, many of the creators of the State of Israel, you know, the early, and certainly the Kibbutzim. So I was wondering, if you take God out of that, are you neutering the questions you know or i mean what i mean is the fear of god it's gone that question you know but certainly are you have you been honest and have you studied and have you helped people so i just yeah. like your i i think it works if you don't believe in god 
you know, I wrote another book called God's To-Do List. And the first question people asked me when I wrote that book is, what if I don't believe in God? And I said, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And <laughs> what I got was Sunday school God. You know, I got an old man with a long beard on a throne in heaven, writing in books about who's going to live and who's going to die. To me, that's all metaphor now. It took me to college to figure it out. But, uh, but you know, for me, God is right here. I'm looking at Rabbi, beautiful Rabbi Rebecca Schatz, brilliant Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. And if I could reach through this screen and give her a hug or shake her hand, that's where I find God. Because she, like all of you, is made B'Tselem Elohim in the image of God. So I find God here in the between. I find God in relationship. That's what Martin Buber taught, I and thou. So yes, you could take God out of this equation and you'd still have a guide for thinking about how you're living your life on earth, right? Got another one, Rabbi? Yeah, Jay. Um, I'm gonna ask the same question that I put on the chat in the chat. Um, many of us aren't able to have children, but we um, we want to participate in the in the idea of mentoring or making being part of children's lives. Can being a teacher sort of replace that concept of procreation? Absolutely. That's why I made the point. I it's a tough question. You know, so I, I try to reach underneath that question. And if you can teach, if you can mentor, if you can tell stories to others, if you're, a, you know, what the, what the young people say now is, are you an influencer? You know what an influencer is? It's somebody who has, you know, presence on social media and, in, you know, influences people. So that's the question underneath the question. It's about influencing the next generation. Uh, one of the stories in the book on this question comes from a couple I met in Orange County who run a shelter for homeless women. And uh, they're Christian. And they said to me, Ron, we've decided not to have children. Uh, and um, these women are our children. And it was so moving to me that uh, that's how they dedicated their lives. Uh, for this point, to be an influencer. So God bless anyone who teaches, anyone who foster cares, anyone who you know, befriends a child and shares your knowledge and your wisdom. It's, it's a wonderful way to answer that question. I don't see any more hands. Okay. Um, I'm just looking to see if I don't see anything in the chat either. So I think you're good. Okay, you're good. Uh, so we're good. So, so uh, Rabbi, with your permission, let me just end with a little review. It's always good to end not only on time, but before time is up. I want to ask somebody here, Karen Cass has, oh, privately, okay. Uh, I'll talk, uh, send, send me an email to ronwolfson1234 at gmail.com. ronwolfson1234 at gmail.com. And I'm happy to answer any questions you have. So um, let's review the seven questions we're asked in heaven. Number one, were you honest in all your relationships? Number two, did you fix a time to study Torah? Again, mazel tov. Did you keep on learning? That's the question. Did you, three, did you influence the next generation? Four, did you live your life with hope in your heart? 
Five, did you figure out your priorities about what's really important? Number six, did you take advantage of everything permitted to you while here on God's beautiful earth? And number seven, were you the best you you could be? And as I said, Judaism has that belief in life after death, but it really emphasizes life before death. So think about the life you're living now in these days before this pre-Tishrei days, before the high holidays and during the high holidays. And think about these questions. And you know, it's really terrific. We get to know the questions now. We don't have to wait for heaven. Heaven can wait. God bless you all. Thank you. Shana Tova Umatuka. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.